All right, well, here with Nick McMaster, um, bass player uh, in a gazillion metal bands based in New York, um, such as Kralis, Scarion, and Adenic Past. And um, perfect timing to have your second coffee, because I like to always sort of ask people's coffee that. habits as an intro. So uh, what what do you like with coffee? What's your How do you drink it? How much do you have? As much as you're willing to tell me. Um, yeah, I mean, I have probably too much. Um, I always make, you know, drip coffee, hot coffee, what I think of as normal coffee. Um, I don't make espresso or anything like that. I might have a cold brew, like, just for fun from, like, a place, but I don't really make that. Um, for a while, I did French press, but then I moved over to, like, the, like, um, pour over thing, like, first, like, plastic with a paper filter and then ceramic, you know, a little bit of an upgrade. <laughs> um, but uh, lately, I've also been, because I kind of worry about the so many paper filters, especially because I might make, like, you know, four in a day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so the, like, Chemex, do you know that thing? It's, it looks like a big yeah, totally. glass. Um, that with, like, a metal filter is kind of my main thing. But um, given that I'm not at my house, and had access to it, I made this with the AeroPress. Have you ever done nice. that? Or it's which is almost better for just the thing with the Chemex is you're, it's weird. It's a weird in between because it doesn't really make a full pot because the basket is. You have to be kind of. It's hard to like fill refill the basket at the right time plus have enough grounds in for like a, a actual large amount of coffee, um, but it's also like a little much for. You know, like one basket equals just one of these, but it's like you're trying to make two. Anyway, the AeroPress is actually kind of better for just like, it's just me, you know. So. Mm -hmm. I love me the AeroPress as well. Um, with the Chemex, are you using the like the big boy one or the yeah, sort of like yeah. narrow one? Um, yeah, the Chemex was actually uh, my first like legit coffee brewer, but it was the baby Chemex, which I feel like nobody has these days. Um, and I had the baby French press, so I relate. Yeah. I love baby brewers in general, so, you know. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, that even the big one, if you, f I've noticed if you fill the, it seems to be, somebody thought of this, if you, if you fill the basket up exactly once and don't refill it, then it makes exactly this much coffee. With the, um, uh, which one? With, with the, the, the one. French press? Or press? No, no, with the, the Chemex. Oh, gotcha. Um, so it's like, I kind of had to figure out, like, filling out the, you know, filling up the grinds, like, putting, you know, more than I would normally, and then timing like the refill so it kind of never stops you know but you get like two basket fills and that's how you can make like two cups but uh you know <laughs> it takes a little doing <laughs> i come from like a, a very sort of like i'm not gonna say pretentious but like a, a hoity-toity like coffee world and um my coffee guru as it were uh he like wrote a famous post back in the day that's like why you should hate the chemex and hmm. um i i appreciate it for its like kind of uh you know very aggressive uh stance on it but i'm also just like i don't know man i, I appreciate coffee in all forms um yeah and chemex is you know like i said i've probably done the pour over more than anything and that's what i have at home home my, my actual home but uh chemex is just pour over again you know mm -hmm. i mean it's just kind of like yeah <laughs> do you do you have any like roaster that you like or um any sort of uh you know coffee like, in particular or region um, yeah i mean i've had uh, a lot of places around here still sell stumptown which you know i'm not like like 
I want my coffee to be good, but I'm not like super like sommelier precious about mm -hmm. it once it's at a certain level, you know. So Stumptown is fine. Uh, Blue Bottle is great. Um, La Colombe, like, you know, there are just like around here, that being New York City, there's a lot of just like, um, kind of like higher end grocery stores that'll have like a bespoke brand like this place Union Market, which is just like so overpriced to buy anything at, but mm -hmm. they have like their branded coffee, you know, which is not because it's it's kind of like the generic brand. It's not too bad. And like that stuff's fine. I mean, I'll even fuck with like making the Starbucks coffee by myself. Like I said, like at a certain point, you know, it just can't be like gas station coffee or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes Dunkin' Donuts, the really like enormous cold brew, that'll kind of do it. Or iced okay. coffee, as they call it. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> nice. There's just so much of it. <laughs> well, man. Well, um, I just need that visceral window into your soul because um, that's how I get to know everybody is whether or not they like coffee and in what way they do. Um, but yeah, I'm stoked to talk about um, the Adenic Pass stuff. You say, do you say Adenic or Adenic? Adenic. Yeah. Okay. I figure Garden of Eden, you know. Um, gotcha. But uh, it's funny how many people think that that's some sort of special word. And I'm like, no, it's a <laughs> word everyone knows. It's just like the adjective. Yeah, Lev. For what Lev's like reading is so Lev Weinstein, the drummer of Palace. He, he thought it was eodidic past, which is a word I still don't know what that actually means. <laughs> is that like a like memory, like eidetic memory or whatever? I think so. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> oh, and record is also a, a word that I had to look up, and it sounds like that's. It, does that mean like in remembrance? Is that the right translation? There's a um, so as I understand it, this is uh, I also do this band called Teresa Bernia with um, Gabriel Gromaglia. I hope I'm not mangling his name from Milan, who is just somebody I started talking to like online because he was like into our music and stuff. And he's um, very accomplished uh, composer, musician, sort of one, you know, he's in school to do like kind of like to be like a John Williams, you know, mm -hmm. um, He's a bit younger and then for as long as i've known him he's done uh one man uh metal acts um namely the clearing path and uh, cosmic putrefaction those are like his two main things and so he just does you know, all the drums all the guitars the bass the vocals the production like just he just you know so the band that we have is just the same thing except i you know i collaborate a little bit on the songs and i, and I play the bass um and uh he was telling me that just in an offhand conversation that um Fellini made this movie called Amarcord, which is a uh kind of like a drama comedy apparently apparently you know somewhat lighthearted um but less important than the movie uh or, or the reason he brought it up was that it was one of these things where Amarcord, as I understand again it could be you know I should probably be fact-checked here but Amarcord wasn't an actual Italian word before this um, it, it was sort of a thing he made up for the title, and because of the content of the movie, um, it entered the lexicon, you know, kind of like Stan or something like that mm -hmm. for us, right? right. Um, as a, uh, when you have a kind of like fleeting moment of thinking of nostalgia. Interesting. Um, and in a, like a positive, perhaps, you know, romantic, forlorn kind of way. Um, so I just thought that that was so cool, you know, the... Um, I mean, it, there are other examples you can think of. It's not the only one, but these times when just one person had like a kind of, you know, idea to 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 use a you know use a new word or something like that, and then for whatever reason it reaches that critical mass through the like art object that it was like 
translated through and then just forevermore, you know, people who haven't seen the movie, this and that, like that just becomes a word, you know, in that language or in that culture. Mm. Um, something really powerful about that. So I think when I first read about the album, somebody was like, what the fuck is an Amarcord? And then there was this long, uh, like, you know, a sentence with a bunch of crazy words in it. And among them was atavism. And I, I feel like anybody that uses the word atavism in a music related thing, it's like, that'll probably be a good album. And indeed, like, uh, you know, not not to toot your horn too much uh, already or, you know, uh, whatever. But uh, I mean, I, I've listened to this shit so many times because it's, it's a fucking brutal but technical, very, you know, super interesting album. But um, the whole atavism thing uh, makes me think of like SND. And I know that you like IDM. So I was like, wait, what does atavism mean? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's cool. Um, it's. It, maybe maybe you didn't even use the term and maybe they were just using the term but um i think uh, i read the same review but yeah i definitely did not use it self-describing um, i think it's basically it. like uh some sort of lost trait that comes back like um kind of like uh like a fish that grows like little like tiny legs that aren't really useful um it's it's a weird term that i, I feel oh, like I'm like gonna, vestigial kind of i think some something in that area but i'm, I'm probably not gonna describe it completely accurately um but, uh, you know, there's this album, Atavism, by SND, which is, like, one of my favorite IDM things. And I know that you're an IDM guy, um, and so I'm curious. I know that group, but not that album. It, it's one of my favorites. It's, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it a lot. It's, uh, you know, very minimal, but kind of, like, micro-rhythmic weird shit that's, like, kind of hard to listen to at times. But uh, I'm just curious, though, what, like, your IDM favorites are. Um some favorite artists or you know if you want to just you know, yeah yeah right. snd on the glitchier side if i recall right the stuff i remember i mean this is going back like 20 years uh, <laughs> but um it's very like uh i mean like i feel like you see them live and they don't actually move that much he's just like pressing the down button in maxim sp and like <laughs> slowly moving a fader um right. yeah well, it, curious i mean um something i went back to recently that was not necessarily a favorite but more like a, a curiosity were the works of a pole Mm. Um, which kind of popped into my head when you were talking about that because it's like, you know, people have always described that and I think it's accurate as like, uh, sounds like the clicks and pops but in like in between radio stations or on a vinyl decided to make dub reggae. <laughs> you know? yeah, totally. um, and it's funny because, you know, the textural aspect in my memory of hearing it, you know, in the late 90s, the textural aspect were, was what stuck out to me. Now when I listen to it, it's it, the, it seems like overwhelmingly musical you know what i mean it's one of these things where there's a regularizing effect i found just across you know something like um early uh lo-fi black metal releases like early dark throne or something like that i come back to and i'm just like man this is just like a fucking banger you know like chuck berry or something like the uh, uh yeah. that layer of fuzz doesn't speak the same or or i've you know i've just like at you know th through hearing so much stuff like that in the intervening time like um it doesn't hit you as like oh my god like this is just noise like you go you kind of can go straight through to um the music underneath you know which in the case of dark throne has never been particularly obtuse what they're playing you know it mm -hmm. might be obscured by the by the by the recording by the by textural qualities of the music but you know there's a firm rock and roll core which is the the sort of proof of that is the kind of music they have made you know, in the last 10 years, you know, like, yeah. the stuff that they, you know, once they sort of drop the veil, um, it's just this like, you know, metal punk hybrid, um, hiking metal punks, et cetera. 
I'll bet they like coffee. But um, yeah, IDM, that was um, uh, my, my like loose, you know, musical journey. Um, once I started, like, I, I got I got a big leg up from my parents who were like old, uh, like hip, had been hippies and were like trying to like kind of stay cool when I was a kid and in the 90s. And so they listened to a lot of like, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that was current, like grunge, and they, they just like really wanted to hear the whole, you know, grunge. I mean, grunge is to me, I think of it as like the last big, like monocultural American movement, like the time when you can be like, oh, everyone is listening to the, you know, I mean, you could say that um, hip hop or more specifically trap, like would be the mm -hmm. one we have now. But I feel like music is just the music scene because of the way can people listen because there isn't the unifying influence of radio and MTV and this and that it's mm -hmm. just like balkanized like people just listen to like what they want basically you know they they drill into their like subgenres and so um you know like current hip-hop or trap like I think just has the most numbers like the biggest numbers but it's still in a sense kind of a subgenre you know like totally, you can't yeah. really say at least to my mind that it has the same quality as like when Michael Jackson albums came out, you know, and just everybody liked it. Like, you're like, this is what we like, you know, or whatever. Or I, I really like, um, sorry, I'm skipping around a lot, but I think it's no, probably no. okay. Uh, I really like the, um, the Marvin Gaye album, what's going on. Um, cause I've been a student of, um, self-proclaimed student of James Jamerson, who was like the Motown bassist. Um, if you see the movie, the funk brothers and everything like that, you can, there's a whole story I won't go into, but, uh, you know, I was talking to my mom about it because I was like, you know, learning some of this stuff and this and that. And it just like, oh, my God, this is so awesome. And she's like, yeah, she's like, yeah, we listened to that back in the day. You know, this is like it was on the radio. She, she was like, there weren't that many records, at you know, in the 60s. Like you mm -hmm. could kind of hear everything if you were just interested, which I always thought was kind of funny. Um, but anyway, so, you know, a, a lot of guitar type stuff um, I kind of had without even really having to try because you know it was sort of this collaboration with my parents to hear like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and even up to like Nine Inch Nails and Typo Negative you know stuff that was like a little had another foot you know in the metal realm um whatever else was going on stuff that's like lamer <laughs> that I won't bring up um when I when I started listening to music on my own um there were there was like a foray into like um New York underground hip hop because that was like very happening at the time. That was something you, there were like specialty record stores and things like that. Um, and in a sense, of course, that is electronic music, you know, just mm -hmm. a vocal heavy version of it. Um, but pretty quickly, I then moved into like industrial with Skinny Puppy and uh, at the bands that were on the World Serpent distribution at the time, um, Coil and Current 93, Nurse with Wound, um, uh, that type of stuff. And then, and then also, the bands that were on Warp Records, so Apex Twin, uh, Autiker, Square Pusher. Uh, I mean, these are like, you know, these are like blue chip elder statesmen at this point, you know, mm -hmm. but it was like hearing those records more or less, you know, as as they came out, you know, as they were new, like the Richard E. James album and um, Autiker kind of as they made their transition from being melodic to just being like, un, you know, overwhelmingly strange. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't really have any like, cult favorites from that period it's kind of just all the most famous bands but i all have always found that those were kind of like the most rewarding at least in that um idiom um there was some other stuff there was a 
a group literally called Various Artists, which <laughs> makes them kind of hard to find, yeah, which was sure. affiliated with the basic channel chain reaction, mm. um, minimal techno scene, but they were, you know, so so minimal techno that you couldn't really call it techno, you know, it, it didn't, it kind of like removed the pulse. Um, and they have a record called eight, nine, 9.5 remixes, which has always been like, just like a total fucking classic. Yeah. And that, um, that pull stuff, I don't know, I'm kind of like, kind of, uh, straining to remember too much IDM. And I think the reason for that is that recently I've like re doubled back down on electronic music. Not that it ever, um, went away, but, um, to my mind, the um, the stuff that's like really getting me excited in terms of synth based, you know, electronic textures and stuff like that um, in the last couple of years actually has been techno. So, you know, I, my friends and I joke, not not intelligent dance music, right? Stupid dance music, like actual <laughs> dance music, you know? Um, and it's like, I, I definitely was averse to anything that was too dance focused. Um, you know, when I was first getting into this stuff, I wanted that sheen that IDM has where it's like, oh, no, this isn't for that. Like, this is like a lot of the same like electronic textures and stuff like that, but deployed for a more kind of interior, you know, mm -hmm. you just listen to it on your headphones while you're walking around kind of thing. Um, and first of all, I just kind of don't care about that. But second of all, I just, you know, I had remained kind of blind to the world of more techno affiliated artists for so long that when I discovered it and realized that there's also this like sort of re interest in the palette of like um, industrial and like EBM uh, type type sounds, you know, which I really like bands like the you know, Haw Job and Wumscut and stuff like that, who were sort of dancey, you know, but I thought that stuff just sort of like petered out. Um, and recently I've been uh, exploring like the labels um, like Fleisch and Bite, and um, I'm going to mangle the name, but like Alf. Gotterim and Wiedergabe or something like that. Like just like like Berghain type stuff, you know. But um which I mean, yeah, it all has a four on the floor beat for sure. But the uh you know, the synth work, the textures, I really, really love I think if you like IDM, you, you I'd I'd recommend you check out this band called Umwelt, U M W E L T, I think it means environment, hmm. who also is, you know, sort of rave oriented, but he's he's very interior as well. Um and uh, he definitely kind of gets hits that nice mix of like contemplation and sort of like, you know, exuberance. So, uh, so yeah, I think that stuff has sort of pushed the, uh, you know, IDM kind of, uh, kind of thing out of my, uh, out of my brain, but for sure, I will um, go back and check SND for sure. It's great stuff. Uh, on the Adenic past record, like one of the things that's interesting to me is that like the drums are so like inhuman and there's like the whole inhuman element to uh, I mean like they actually sound like quite convincing you know but um I know that Colin uh synthesized them and you program them but um in a way I was like you know that's kind of like electronic music it's like like or, uh, intelligent death metal essentially you know right. so like I feel like that that's a, a good way to swap out um so yeah um let's see here I yeah, guess if I um, may um one well, yeah, for one, it did when I was making it at times, it it dawned on me like this is kind of electronic music. I mean, here I am in a MIDI grid doing drums, mm -hmm. but um, something you might be I feel like you're picking up on that um, was a very conscious decision that um, sort of started unconscious and became conscious was the watchword for me for programming those drums 
was to make them musical, mm -hmm. but not human. Like, um, well, okay. They are human in that I have a rule I've had, I've had since I've, I programmed a lot of drums, um, but you usually not for release mm -hmm. until, until this record. And actually until the slam 420 record, which is like the preview of Edenic pass where I, I did like a bunch of songs that, you know, basically they had me on drum programming and bass and like songwriting Colin on guitar and Paulo on vocals. So it really is like the preview, but it's like, you know, lots of dumb sci-fi porn yeah. samples and just, you know, it's actual slams, um, you know, just like knuckle dragger shit. Um, and the concept of Edenic Pass was, I was kind of like, well, you know, I kind of don't have any more like dumb jokes about like super low culture. And also I kind of don't have any more just like really dumb rhythmic slam riffs, but I definitely have more of the like fast parts of the Slam 420 songs. So. Yeah. You know, like in this, and then obviously deployed in like a, a context I actually thought was interesting and wasn't just like, you know, purposefully stupid for laughs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so previously all my drum programming was um, uh, like a demo, like an instructional demo for a drummer. Gotcha, um, yeah. And for that reason, I've always like obeyed the rule of two hands, two feet, you know, like that, yeah. not to program anything that doesn't um, have that, uh, because obviously it's not going to be useful to give it to a drummer if it... Um, and so I, I kept that. So there is that sort of, you know, human um, approximation there. Uh, but other than that, I wasn't worried about tweaking them to try to like fool you. Right. Um, what I was what I was worried about is putting, you know, most much of the time when we say that certain drum programming sounds, you know, not human, which is not even necessarily criticism. Mortician is a good example. I think that shit sounds great. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound human at all for a second. Um, usually it's because of, um, in my opinion, the, the stress pulses, like the, uh, basically the equivalent of how hard it's hit or how, mm. how hard like a thing sounds, which in MIDI terms, not to get too technical, but this is the MIDI, um, you know, every MIDI note has like the note that it makes. And then it has a thing called velocity. Um, you probably know this, but you know, just for people watching, um, velocity is a scale from zero to 127. And it's basically like how hard the, the note or the hit is, is hit. Um, and so with velocity as a loose approximation of a drummer sort of like stressing certain beats, you can put musical pattern, you know, something where it's just literally every eighth note is a, you know, hi-hat being or ride symbol being hit you can put certain patterns you could be like you know the most common one being like strong weak strong you know but you could also do like a three based pattern not necessarily triplets but three organization like you know stuff like that um and so i just tried to have a lot of that so that you just got musical information related to the 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 riffs and the rest of the stuff was going on um which makes it sound more human because it's honestly very hard for a drummer um you know like a, an accomplished drummer if you ask them to play a beat they're probably going to eat and they're playing like straight eighth notes on the hi-hat they're probably going to pulse them strong weak if right, you're yeah. in like a, a four based beat um you know time signature um they're just gonna have like they, it is actually going to be hard we have this in uh in in Krala sometimes Colin will ask Lev to play a beat with no stress on the cymbals, like just play ga 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 ga, and it's actually like it's something you really have to focus on, which makes sense because you know you're a drummer and you're playing these things and projecting you know musicality with an instrument that is you know not 
strictly speaking, melodic. Um, so those stress patterns become part of the very much part of the DNA. So that's what I was trying to do. But yeah, like um, I remember having a discussion around my fills with Colin, um, how a lot of my fills on that record are uh, like roundhouse style, you know, like, right, like that yeah. around the toms or around the kit. And Colin brought up, he's like, you know, I've noticed that almost like do, drummers do do that, but that it is, it's much more common. Um, and maybe just for a sort of like arms, you know, bot like physical reason for them to like play something, return to the snare and then go, you know, that that's a much more like, like right, yeah. that kind of stuff, because, it, and it makes sense. You're kind of like coming towards home and the snare drum is like the, really the sort of center of the drum kit, um, you know, the most important instrument. Um, but of course in the programming world, it's like, that's just arbitrary. I could do it right. one way or the other. And so I remember having discussion when I know it's about half done with the record. So Colin had heard, you know, a, a large sampling of mine, but, but there was also more to go. And he was like, you know, if you wanted to make this sound more, more human, essentially, that would be a thing to do. Um, and there were a couple other examples. And I remember just being like, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> I'd rather just have this, you know, this style that I've sort of arrived at, um, rather than, you know, I think of those things as more or less artistically equivalent. But if I, if the only reason I'm doing this is to increase the sort of like sense, like verite, like I'm not interested in fooling people that this was a drummer. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I will say Colin did have, um, there is one thing that makes it sound a lot more like a human drummer, which is that I was working with the logic, um, just like dr drummer, drum kit uh, sample things, you know, mm -hmm. and as somebody who back in the day uh, downloaded the drum kit from hell, uh, illegally sorry thomas hawk you know this is the mashuga drummer sampling his drum kit and giving you waves and i was literally moving the little wave things around and he had them in, for the velocity he had them every every sample was like a one to ten he had ten different samples oh, with shit, different yeah. intensities of hit so you could do this sort of thing um without midi um but it was really laborious and now you buy logic it costs 200 bucks which for a DAW is like pretty fucking cheap and um it comes with these kits. It comes like tons, you know, I just use like heavy kit is what it's called, but it comes with all these kits, all these samples, they have like multiple options for each drum and then the MIDI velocity thing. Um, and it sounds awesome. Like it's totally. like the state of the art has just, has just, you know, it, it's incredible. Like compared to how much work it used to take to, to get the same result to just get that. So that was fine. And if you listen to the Slam 420 record, that's what you're hearing. We didn't like Gus. I literally just gave like an audio bounce for mine. But for Identic Pass, because we kind of just wanted everything to be, you know, good. Um, that's where Colin took uh, the MIDI that I gave him with all my information, all my stress patterns, your velocity, all that stuff. Um, and then he reassigned with actual recorded drum samples, which yeah. being a, an engineer, he has a huge library from all the sessions he's done of various hits, you know, with like good mics, with like the same hit with like close and room and stuff like that. So um, that's why when you listen to the actual record, um, there's just like a much, uh, a much bigger sense of space because you are actually hearing recorded samples and spit you're, you're hearing some air between that as opposed to whatever however they make these logic mini samples and something else interesting that he was able to do is so um not to get too far into this but do you know about like ping ping this whole 
ping yeah um it's maybe i don't think so <laughs> sorry I'll sometimes talk to people and they'll be like you're talking about that like it's a real thing and i kind of know what you mean but it's not a real thing and i'm like well i mean what what's real if we talk about it enough maybe anyway um ping is just in the in the world of like extreme brutal death metal grindcore that kind of stuff certain bands first of all they have the gravity blast you know where you're using the rim of the snare drum as a fulcrum to just make a, mm -hmm. inhumanly you know much faster than you could just play that they just eh, like that it's not it's not very loud acoustically but of course if you're miking it you can you know make it or if you're triggering the snare um ping is just that the snare will be tuned very high so it sounds more like a ping than like a flat um and the way the records are mixed is you know these are these just sort of like splattery guttural everywhere kind of death metal in the first place and then accompanying that almost like as a kind of like a counterpoint you know like sonic counterpoint is just this like the snare has been become this weird like almost you know almost like a high symbol or something like that um and uh there's the singer of the Denny Pass, Paulo uh, Pugundalan, has kind of just, um, you know, he's kind of this dude that like everybody knows in the death metal scene. He was in this band, uh, Capremesis, and just like very, you know, involved. And he's just like, um, has a much better like impression of the whole ping thing. He's kind of been like, you know, not consciously pushing, but this is kind of like one of his, you know, sort of like tropes or whatever that like kind of caught on with everybody. I'm like, oh yeah, that like ping. does that record have ping <laughs> it's fucking hilarious and then like it's kind of like there's this label lifeless chasm which did the identic pass tapes and they make hats with ping you know and like an, an <laughs> <laughs> i guess i was so, just thought of that as like uh like a piccolo snare or just like a yeah uh, so, i mean it doesn't have to be a piccolo snare it can mm -hmm. just be um it can just be a normal one tuned high and it's also it's a lot to do with how with how they mix the record like making the snare like a lot louder you know it's it's an intersection it's a synthesis of the style of playing the setup of the drums and the production you know because usually it's also it's so noticeable because the drums and I mean, the guitar and bass are like this low you know high gain rumble or something like that they're not like super defined you know even by death metal standards of like morbid angel Deicide kind of stuff we're talking like you know we're talking like devourment and below if that makes sense <laughs> like um, totally. so uh anyway large digression but Edenic has to you know i we were like wondering if it was going to have this aspect like ping snare or whatever and ultimately what we what we did this this is colin's innovation but um uh the way I had programmed just had, you know, the snare was used like more conventionally, but because Colin was replacing every single uh, sample I used just, you know, it was essentially my like drum sheet music, you know, in it, if, if stress patterns were also notated, mm -hmm. um, like highly specific sheet music, you know, uh, and then he had total control. And of course, more, you know, more or less, he, he picked samples that were that were pretty similar to what the ones I was using just better. But for, you know, he had yeah, the freedom, he could, we could have done anything. It could have been, you know, thunderclaps or birds tweeting or whatever. So for some of the snare, he picked like a, a ping sample. So that's actually not, that's like a layer of composition that's very, obviously very present in the songs, but it's not, it's not, it's not like for me, I just wrote the snare, you know, to function in the songs the same way. And then when he was producing and, and, and doing, uh, implementing the actual samples for this, he, he just selected on his own certain sections that he thought you know should have that kind of overpowering high-pitched 
gotcha. um, vibe. But yeah, but that's not something I I like noted at all. So it just kind of speaks to like the power of that process, you know, or like the the um the ways in which you know that can like influence. And again, most of the time he was just sort of faithfully reproducing what I'd done because there was kind of like enough, you know. But uh, it's you know really the sky's the limit. I mean, you could do <laughs> you could do anything. So. I feel like when I read the you know description of it said like uh, Colin Marston, uh, fake drum sound designer. I I'm kind of glad to hear you describe it this way because I was like, holy shit, he synthesized these. Like these sound really really impressive. <laughs> and I was thinking he was like starting from wave uh, like sine waves or something. I was uh, no no. Well, I mean I'm, yeah, I'm... And it's funny. Something I still don't quite understand is how if he's using whatever the program he's using, even though you feed in actual like wave like recorded samples of the drums it can still do the midi velocity mm. oh it can still like adjust their their pulses and i'm not exactly sure how honestly but uh you know that stuff was definitely preserved so but yeah i mean synthesizer is again almost accurate because again, he had the power to change it wholesale you know it was mm. only deciding to kind of keep it faithful to um, for these like stress patterns and stuff like I feel like for me when I want to add like a little you know dash of more uh, believability I'll just like do random velocity or like you know and able to just like drop add uh, some randomness to the velocity um, and it's just like a quick way to make it sound a little bit more uneven but uh, do you have any sort of like methodology for how you choose? Oh yeah that was what that was what I started with too that was my assumption that like okay so what are we so why because, you know, the world is constant entropy and chaos. So when a drummer is hitting a drum, yeah, just like that's a di that's technically like a different like hit of the drum or cymbal like every time. So random patterns of velocity should should make this randomness. What I basically discovered is that that is not true. Mm. Um, that in fact, a, a drummer worth anything at all playing is exercising an incredible degree of control over what you're hearing. And so if you just do the sort of like random, you know, random velocity kind of hits, um, it, do it doesn't sound right. At least it didn't sound right to me. It, do it doesn't sound, it sounds less natural. It sounds more right. fake, basically. Um, and so so that's why I, I arrived at the, the, the process I described of putting in stress patterns that were ultimately musical that had something to say about the overall rhythmic nature of the part or the, um, you know, the uh, something going on in the riff or something like that, or just, you know, kind of like a little bit, a little melody or something like that in there, because yeah, hearing that your brain locks into it and is like, okay, yeah, I, I get that, you know. Um, that said, you know, I would, I would, you know, get into the weeds and very like, if we're talking a 16th note, you know, so more then I'd probably have it be like, like, uh, you know, strongest hit is the downbeat, the second, and then the eighth note, like the and would be a little weaker than that. Um, but then the E and uh, you know, is are are both weaker than that. So it's kind of like strongest, weakest, second strongest, but not as strong as the first and then weakest again, you know, and that's how you mm -hmm. can get a uh, 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 like something like that. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and I would try to throw, you know, you throw up some randomness or sometimes when you have just three hits that are the same, maybe it's kind of like gunk gunk or something like that. But, um, yeah, <laughs> basically how that's going <laughs> for sure. Uh, so I know that you like electronic music and I feel like, especially in dance music, there's like 
<laughs> Little kitty. Um, there's this. You did like, not like that. Okay. <laughs> there's I a I was big like cat cameo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with like you know like techno for instance or like you know like I really like like Chicago footwork where it's like there's a defined tempo that's like essential to like what category of music you're talking about. But like mm. I feel like death metal could never do that because it would be all at the same tempo. So it's more about like how you switch between tempos, how you handle tempos, and um, I know that some people just like do it willy nilly, but um. There's something where, like, you know, it sounds very musical in the album, and, like, uh, I don't even know if you're sh shifting tempos or if it's just, like, a tuplet thing, or, like, um, how do you think about tempos and navigating between them to, like, sort of keep that turbulence? So, um, yeah, I'm shifting tempos constantly, first of all. Um, something that I've done, so I write a, a lot of my music that's ultimately, uh, okay, well, okay, some, some, like, ground rules, like, um, the bands that I'm in, that use a live drummer, um, basically never use a click track. Like, gotcha. no, you know, maybe once in a blue moon for Kralis or something like that. If it's a thing that's like very, very, um, uh, very sparse and like not regular, then then we might do the drums to a click just to kind of have everybody, you know. But this this is like a really like real exception, um, or or some other like special cases where there's an argument for just like a normal song. Uh, we use that and and that's been a very conscious decision um and gary on and stuff like that's been a conscious decision going you know very very far back because um i remember like uh uh behemoth the uh you know polish death metal band which i i used to like quite a bit they've kind of just annoyed me more and more in the past 10 years to the point mm -hmm. where i'd say i don't like them but uh but they used to really have like kind of a vibe and i was really into the polish death metal scene you know, i lived there for a little bit and all this stuff um and they had a thing that that i thought you know worked for them where their stuff was very very obviously to a click track i'm talking about like zoskia cultus and demigod like what i think of as like the good albums of like their kind of mature death metal phase um they th you could just tell it was to a click everything you know and they but they had this sort of like martial like you know lesions of soldiers kind of you know marching forward and everything in lockstep and so that very much like gave um that gave it that quality but i always knew that i wanted my stuff um uh to be like a lot more slippery like one of my blueprints for death metal is the morbid angel album formulas fails to the flesh um and it's funny because morbid angel actually goes back and forth the album before that domination definitely is to a click track um and you can kind of tell it sounds a little bit more you know straight and regular both in the songwriting and in the execution but formulas is just like slippery it kind of sounds like the whole thing is like you know circling a drain you know water circling a drain like that and that was for death metal like that's that's nine times out of ten like what i'm gonna want for my own music because i want that sort of eternally like unbalanced um feel so that's what we do for when we're playing it, you know, we're, we're thinking a lot about tempo changes and stuff like that, but it's all through the sort of prism of the drummer and everyone else's sense of tempo, like not being checked by a machine, by a metronome. Gotcha. Um, when I, but the thing is that I write my stuff, um, if I'm starting a song, I almost, I almost always write it in a, a MIDI program. Um, so how to like approximate that. And basically the thing is that I have tempo changes like constantly like almost every riff at mm -hmm. least like small and it's not stuff that i'm worried about sticking to once we start playing the song in a live band context but it's just more that 
obviously the MIDI by default is, you know, something like Guitar Pro, which is what I use, but you know, these sorts of programs are just going to have metronomic feel. I mean, they can't not, that's what they are. Um, so by having very subtle or, or not subtle, you know, tempo changes kind of, you know, a lot, I'm able to get some, some of this more like live, you know, human feel. Um, so Edetic Past, you know, has that. I think there might be, since the songs are so short, there might be one or two that's the same tempo throughout, although there's also so much time signature switching that um, the the nature of the pulse, you know, can kind of change. Um, but yeah, that's at least what I started with, you know, lots, lots of lots of tempo changes um, to begin with. Uh, and then <laughs> around I had done like three songs. And then I discovered in logic that, um, okay, so what I do is write the song in Guitar Pro as, as a baseline. Um, with all the tempo changes and shit, uh, export the MIDI file from, and again, any guitar pro is not special. Any, any of these programs mm -hmm. that are like, give you like a tab sheet music kind of thing to do that. Export a MIDI file from there, which they can basically all do. Cause that's what they're making for them for their own playback underneath export that. And then, um, I found this just by accident, but it's like, it fucking changed my life. You can then just open that in logic. If you mm -hmm. just double click on the MIDI file and it will open a blank logic session with the tempo and time signature gridding like imported from that MIDI file. So then mm. you have just like, um, I don't know, almost like a, you've taken like a plaster cast of your face, right? It's like the song, like there isn't any info there, but it's perfectly molded for you to then play the song into it. Um, and also you could just immediately export at least uh, a click track to, you know, help you practice it or something like that. Um, so that was, that was sort of the starting thing. But then when I'd done a couple of these songs, I realized <laughs> that, uh, it also gives you like a graph of the tempo. And I realized that logic had this feature where if you have two, you know, the graph is all straight lines, you know, connected by points, but it actually had a feature where you could take a point and you could pull and it would make a curve. Mm -hmm. And then if you had drum samples arrayed on this, it would just perfectly make these accelerandos and retardandos, you know, slowing down mm -hmm. and speeding up. Um, with what you'd done. And once I discovered that it was like, oh boy, <laughs> like, it was like, I mean, there was already, you know, cause like, I kind of wanted to have this feel like how to achieve a sort of like the, the vibe of, um, you know, brutal death metal, like chaos. Like one of my biggest, uh, um, criticisms of a lot of so-called technical death metal mm -hmm. is that it's, uh, or like self-proclaimed technical level is that it it is you know technical which is not a word i like anyway but let's yeah, not yeah. have that conversation but you know it's very involved guitar writing and playing not not disputing that but the overall sense of their songwriting is often very very conventional as in whatever the thing they have with the sweeping and the tapping and right, blah blah yeah. blah it goes four times the next part goes four times like everything like if you kind of like zoom out and take the sort of like bird's eye view of it, it's not, it's not weird at all. You know, exactly, it's yeah. only on certain like valences. Is it weird? So, um, I, you know, I wanted for this to have this sense of, you know, I mean, obviously there is a defined rhythm. It's not just like early carcass where they're kind of just playing <laughs> whatever. And it's this cloud because it's drum machine. So, you know, that somewhere there is this going on. Um, but if I was like, if I have, you know, so many time signature, uh, uh, tempo changes and, and these time signature changes, you know, not for their own sake, but, you know, as the music allows, um, 
that I wanted this sense of that as you were listening, you could kind of be also because it, it moves relatively quickly through all the parts that you could never really with confidence hone in on the one, you know, you could never like as soon as you kind of felt like you got it, it would be onto something else. And so once I realized that um, uh, I could do this thing where not only have these time, uh, tempo changes, but you know, pull the curve down and they would actually blend between them and play all the intermediate states, you know, and perfectly like change my drum programming in a way that I, I don't think I could really do by hand to, you know, do these slowdowns and speed ups like that really like achieve that goal. I mean, then the whole thing just sounds like this like swirling mass and even just the click track that it exports, which is which is what the vocalist used because these, these became very hard to do vocals to, as you could imagine. Yeah. Um, so we started asking for like a click track. Um, but even the click track becomes this sort of work of art because it's like constantly changing the stress and the, yeah. and the, you know, the, um, the tempo, but in a smooth way, you know, and this and that. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was super exciting. And that's, I think this is all in answer to your question. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I just wanted to hear how you think about tempos. Um, yeah, I mean, exactly. I think that's so that's how I thought about the tempos for that. You know? I think we like, uh, in my current project, uh, a limitivist, which is like this, like algorithmic death metal ish thing that I'm doing. Um, I feel like it's very aligned with what you're doing, but, um, I'm kind of like the opposite in that I'm like super quantized. Like I will quantize everything to the point that it doesn't sound like quantized. Um, and it probably is not in my best interest because it's just gonna make shit extremely complicated. But, um, so like part of this is me trying to define my like parameters and like my ranges. So like, I'm always trying to like decide on some sort of unimportant thing. Like what is my range of tempos to pull from? Um, so I'm curious what your like minimum and maximum would be. Or I, mean, um, I don't know if you think that way at all, but. I do. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, so. Uh, for something like that, for something like this sort of like drum machine death metal, I am pulling on my experience of playing this music, you know, just just with no machine help um and not doing anything that isn't really in those bounds mm -hmm. so um i also personally just don't give a shit about like the fastest drums ever i, right. I never have and you know um lev weinstein the drummer of college we've been playing we, we went to high school and college together we played together forever our whole musical conception and that's just never you know obviously if you if you know anything about death metal drumming, you know that there's this sort of like sports aspect to it. Um, mm -hmm. And I just hate, I just think that's so dumb, you know, like get, yeah. I mean, get to the point where you can, you know, and, and this is a already a, a major feat, you know, get to the point where you can play the classics of the genre, you know, you can play double, double bass at the same tempo as, you know, um, you know, an early cannibal corpse record or something like that. Like, you know, but once you're once you're there pushing and pushing to the extra oh 215 oh 230 you know bpm mm -hmm. that is um i'm like eh, maybe try to make an interesting musical part mm -hmm. at a slightly lower tempo like i don't know like that's kind of like yeah you know, i mean also if you hit 300 then is like that's also 150 which is also 75 <laughs> so like yeah, right like... i mean although you're playing presumably 16th note bass drums at that tempo you know so it's yeah. still um you also start approaching just a constant tone yeah exactly you know <laughs> so it's like um yeah so that that uh anyway so when when i when i when i program this stuff i yeah i'm i'm kind of going to the the um 
I am using the tempo markers that I um, over time have just sort of developed again from just from working with drummers again, not really like giving a shit about tempo, but occasionally being like, well, what tempo is that part? Like, what is this? You know, so um, uh, I'd say, you know, not really over to if we're talking 16 notes um, for the kick drum, you know, not really over 200, um, probably more like 180 because I like it to just have some heft, you know, mm -hmm. still sound fast. Right. Um, uh, there might have been some times because, again, I wasn't I also wasn't careful. I, I wasn't uh, I didn't care about you know it might there like if i made a part in the agenda record that was too fast for a drummer to play well a drummer's never going to be asked to play it so who gives a shit so <laughs> i i may have gone over this just because we were already at 180 or 190 which is not a crazy tempo especially because a lot of the riffs are eighth note based so that's not necessarily <laughs> that fast and then maybe the, the where would this happen again it's it's musically important but i then might have switched to triplet like the triplet above 16th notes i.e sextuplets mm -hmm. um and that's probably inhumanly fast <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay just because now instead of four notes every 190 bpm it's six notes you know um but that's really just because i love that triplet feel when it's fast like i love like a conventional blast beat when it's pulsed in three that's something that you know goes back to weakling and the whole black metal thing and stuff mm. like that um it just sounds really good you know so again it's like not like that but yeah i'd say 180 is the you know 180 190 195 um usually maybe again if there was a part with um uh a part with uh that was eighth note phrased in the in the in the guitars um i might go up to 210 or 215 just to kind of give it that sort of urgency but but i bet i i haven't really reviewed but i would bet that if i was doing that i'd probably just have eighth note kicks or just a beat that doesn't have super duper fast um you know as as its core just because i don't want it especially with the drum machine you make this shit sound that fast all the time and it just starts sounding dinky you know yeah. you want <laughs> You want, you know, so better to have, if, if that's the overall fast tempo, better to have the drums hang back at like a lower subdivision. Um, but yeah, I also, for and then for the lower range, I'd say probably not lower than, than 70. Um, I really like 90, again, because I kind of like to have, um, this, Garyon does this a lot, to have a kind of slow overall tempo, but then to have like quintuplets and like, you know, a lot of interesting subdivisions. And also, you know, the more melodic and harmonic information you're trying to convey to your riffs usually i find you don't want that much speed because then all that stuff just blows by and it doesn't resonate and you know music to me is the sort of melodic harmonic content you know um there are times when you're like oh i just want this part to sound just like a blast just like a rush but you know you're always going to kind of get back to wanting to have some sort of cool you know, chord motion or something like that. And that's just mm -hmm. good. That's, I mean, that's what music is to me, not to be reductive. Um, but yeah, something else about tempo that I find is I was in a band called uh, Castavet. Um, my friend uh, uh, Ian Jetsitian, uh playing drums, who also played the drums in uh, Gethsemane or Gethsemane. Um, he does a lot of work uh, with Mark McCoy, the old singer Charles Branson um, on Youth Attack Records and stuff. He's kind of done like a lot of stuff, but it's so desperate that it, I find people don't necessarily connect that it's all the same person. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, Castavet was kind of like, you know, newer black metal, um, you know, mixed with like a, a other, you know, black metal and that. And, and 
Um, for one, it didn't, a rule of the band was that it had no blast beats to try to force a sort of more creative drum approach and kind of give it a different sound, which, which totally worked in my opinion, not my idea, so I can say that. Um, <laughs> and something I learned in that that he said that I, that I, is that his favorite tempo for double kick was like 130, 135. Mm. Um, and I really, really feel that because that's, you know, we're not talking about you know, an onslaught that that's when you've got kind of just this like digga 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 like this kind of like it's probably a little faster than that, but like there's just like nice rolling sense of motion, you know, that can really be the sort of like supporting bed for some really interesting, you know, musical stuff. So I mean that's you know by this whole sort of like world series of drummers thing, I mean that's you know pathetic tempo, but I'm <laughs> I'm telling you, like do not underestimate like 137 16 note double kick like that's you know it, it it actually every bass drum hit you know really lands at that tempo totally. and uh yeah so yeah I, I also like that tempo favorite some of my favorite tempos you know <laughs> i think of that as like the the uk garage or garage uh, tempo you know for electronic music people um 130 135 mm -hmm. um but I, I wait, wait, what is the garage. is is garage does it have like a the drum and bass beat essentially or kind what, of yeah, it, it's like really like always hiccuped and like kind of like the like everything's anticipated like boom bam, boom 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 or like you know gotcha uh, yeah I've always wanted to get more into that yeah I mean going back to dance music it's kind of just because I think I've heard DJs and stuff say that one thirty is the tempo you know there's a there's a temptation with like you know more like trance and gabber hardcore and stuff like that to like up the tempo because it's just gonna mm -hmm. have a lot of or to play stuff that's more at that tempo um you know creeping up to 160 180 that, that kind of stuff that's going to have it's just going to feel really like explosive but that people get tired of dancing at that pulse and so if you <laughs> you know really at the like 130 uh 135 again um that that tempo is the kind of thing where you could have people you know with you dancing for like long periods of time you know oh, they're actually gonna have you know and there's room for like expressiveness something like that something else interesting about tempo is that my you know like i said skinny puppy and stuff was big for me all my beloved industrial clock dba like that kind of stuff uh ebm that shit's all really fucking slow like i didn't realize until you know like taking a more you know really looking into it but like the tempo of that kind of thing like you're kind of like ministries and stuff like that not the metal stuff that you know is it is more like 110 you yeah. know there's this really like stompy kind of you know that kind of shit like um so that's even even like quite slow like the probably the slowest dance music you can have that still qualifies as such <laughs> um so we, you said like we don't have to talk about the technical thing but i sort of i am curious to hear a little about the, a little bit about this because I, I don't like that term either, and there's plenty of, like, technical death metal that, like, it's all, like, you know, like, it has that whole, like, uh, neoclassical sort of, like, everything in harmonic minor, and, like, you know, it doesn't seem like they're doing anything new, it's just, it's more, like, flashy metal, and right. um, I'm more interested in, like, doing something that's, like, like, using death metal as, like, a modern composition vehicle, um, which I think... My, my thoughts, exactly. Schoenberg um, and all that, you know, Weber and... What's a, a word that you prefer over technical... I mean, that's the thing is that it is, you know, when Cryptopsy records and stuff were coming out when I was first, you know, aware of this stuff, that was the term I used just to, you know, distinguish stuff that had this sort of crazy, you know, intense writing and, and yeah, like was involved to play, but, um, uh, 
you know, I think <laughs> there's like a Wikipedia article about technical death metal or something like that, points out that just regular death metal is still quite difficult to play on guitar, you know, yeah. most of the time. So it's not, you know, it's a false distinction. I mean, yeah, I end up using the word, but it's just like, you know, let's let's use it with like like a caveat and, and a kind of awareness. Um, uh, you know, I, I might say weird or bizarre or that it has writing that's involved or something like that. You know, there isn't really anything like catchy enough. There's also the sort of uh, equally fraught avant-garde, you know, like yeah. which seems to have gone over to apply to stuff that sounds like later Despel Omega, you know, anything with kind of a lot of weird, like uh, hanging arpeggios, you know, in the high range or 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 that it's avant-garde in a sense like 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 flirty or something like that that just like will like have a saxophone or like something you know what I mean? yeah like, sort of like um instrumental or, or or shifts like that um yeah i mean you you brought up another criticism of technical death metal just you know of, of this sort of like straw man of a boring technical death metal that we've been talking about when you said yeah it's all in harmonic minor or something like that like yeah they're literally only more important than terminology or anything like that is that, you know, if your goal is to make something that sounds like, what is the goal of, of technic of technical death metal? It's like to have something that sounds just, you know, um, like intense to almost the point of like, is this a human being playing it? Right. Like I would say that's, that's, you know, um, intense, weird, overwhelming, um, you know, things, sensations like that. Um, and, if you're only focusing on is this like do, is there like a lot of crazy finger motion when i play this riff if that's the only like angle from which you were making this technical or whatever yeah. word you use then the rest of your you know the rest of your music is going to suffer um where to me i always try to look at at everything um i'm working on and, and in a sense everything i'm listening to might you know if if it's of this category um you know yeah like are there cool, you know, memorable, but like, you know, novel and, and hectic sounding passages on guitar? Is there cool harmonic motion? Do I get a sense that if I broke this down to like chords on the piano, um, with it, like taking away all of the sort of like filigree and actual playing, would I still think it was fun or would I think it was incredibly boring and just the same chords over it? You know, is it fun? Is it dynamic? That is to say, having a lot of difference in motion, like, um, in the tempos, in the in the uh, rhythms that you're feeling, you know, it doesn't have to have odd time signatures, but um, whether it does or it doesn't, does it have a lot of cool rhythms? I mean, I always, um, yeah, like try to sort of view stuff I'm working on from one thing at a time. So let's remove all the melodic content from this part that I'm proposing that we're going to have in a band, and it's just it's just claps. Does it sound cool? You know, can you take all the notes out and it's just the rhythm and it sounds okay? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile. Could you take all the rhythm out and just play the mel you know the the mel the pitches that you're playing in succession and does that melody like have something you know can you reduce it to chords can you you know so um i mean i'm kind of just giving my theory of what makes kind of like uh what i was gonna say what makes music good what i really mean is what makes music that is sort of like trying to to have a lot of compositional um the quality of sort of like very composed music because what i'm trying to get at is that i also really like you know ambient music or certain instrumental musics that don't have any of these qualities that just project a kind of vibe you know something like um brian eno's another green world or something like that you know 
not technical, not, you know, attacking you with a million ideas from these, from this sort of thing. Um, the great thing about music is that, and what I think, you know, uh, frustrates thinking about it algorithmically to an extent is that there literally are no rules. There's really more what I call norms. Um, and these norms can be very, very powerful. Um, all the stuff I've kind of said about, you know, don't do this on the drums, don't do this with the tempo, like yada, yada, yada. But everything I've said and everything you could articulate is going to have like uh, an exception. And so there is, you know, fuzzy, you know, post-rock like shoegaze stuff or ambient music or reggae music or country blues or something like that. And And all of the artistic investment has been put into just like vibe, for lack of a better word, just like giving you know communicating a sense through totally other means but if we're gonna say yes all of that is possible and that stuff is just as worthy as the music we're talking about and then say okay let's 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 narrow our our focus and and talk about stuff with involved composition whether it's contemporary classical or you know death metal attempting to be technical or whatever Mm -hmm. like that um (laughs) then yeah like you should be looking at it from all these different angles like it shouldn't it should never just be um you know, is it a is a crazy riff like when you look at a person playing it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, in terms of like, so I guess like for me, uh, thinking about death metal, like I, I'm I'm more of a death metal guy than a black metal guy. Like I like black and death, um, but I feel like death metal or uh, black metal was never really my thing. And what I like about death metal is largely that's like so chromatic and all over the place. And I'm like a big like Elliot Carter fan. I don't know if you sure. folks with him, but um. Colin, Colin uh, likes him. I, I haven't really dug in, but I'm I'm very aware. Uh, I just R- like, R.I.P. Like, as well. Yeah. Um. I mean, you got to be old though, so that's cool. Um, he but, was making music like up until 100. I mean, yeah. What What else could you ask for? You know. <laughs> yeah. Happy dude. Um. It, with like the serial stuff of 12 tone and all, you know, like it's. I feel like that's so like you have to use every song, every single color, you know, on the palette. But um, I like this idea where you can take little fragments and sort of like move them around and um i don't like a lot of the time i can't actually tell what your note choices are like how like i have no sense of how it's informed and so i'm sort of curious how you inform your selections of notes and rhythms and sort of like um like those types of things yeah um there there are times when i've used certain systems um i actually would use a sort of like uh frequently when i'm when i'm stuck i mean my goal here is is to sound like more conventionally musical, not um, 12 Tony or whatever, but it is the same sort of like set theory or whatever that like if I have a a bunch of parts already and I'm trying to write the next part and I want it to sound kind of consistent and flowy, like well-written in the sort of main sense, not in the mm-hmm. sort of contrary, you know, not doing something weird, but uh, then maybe I'll take all of the notes that I've had of a previous part and just write them all down and be like, okay, I can only use these to make the new part, you know, because then at least I know there'll be some sort of pitches that are, that you've been primed to hear, you know, familiar. Um, and so I might, if again, when, when I'm like kind of stuck, I might, um, as like a, a creative, um, you know, crutch or something kind of like resort to stuff like that or, 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 or dip back into music theory, you know, like, um, okay, well, this part, had a lot of stuff, you know, because I never write like super straight music theory wise, but I think you can always use conventional music theory to like, um, at least partially describe the stuff you're playing. So like, maybe like, oh, well, there was a lot of, 
you know, minor thirds or minor sixths in this last, big surprise, right? In this last part, um, you know, so now if I want to have a little like change of color, like maybe I'll like lean into the majors or something like that, or maybe, you know, I'll do these parts that all had like strong fifth stuff and I'll, I'll keep the root notes the same, but I'll, I'll, I won't, I won't use the fifth, you know, and I'll add some other, um, sort of more clashing note, like the seventh or something like that, you know, maybe, um, lean on that. But that said, you know, I do do that stuff and I think it's, it's cool. And, 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 you know, people should definitely sort of have that in your toolbox, but there is something, um, I read that Schoenberg himself said, uh, which has really, really stuck with me, um, which is basically that, uh, you know, he, he made those, um, systems, um, he made those theories and stuff like that. And they were, I think, very strictly followed by people that, that, that came after, um, first, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, Webern, who was like kind of his first student, but, um, but then certainly like, you know, I mean, as I understand it, this is bonkers, but, you know, if you went to a conservatory at a certain time post-war, like, you would have to, like, learn that. Actually, mm -hmm. my my friend Kelly Moran, who's um, a, a, a pianist who is, it works on warp in this sort of piano plus electronics kind of idiom, um, when I met her, she was going to, uh, doing a, a master's in music at um, UC Irvine and uh, quite some time ago, and I, and I visited her and actually sat in on a post-tonal theory class where they really were study you know 12 tone sets and this kind of stuff in in the sense of a classroom like there was a quiz and a right and wrong answer and stuff like that so people mm -hmm. apply that but yeah the thing that schoenberg said that has really resonated with me is that he would do all of this stuff and then much of the time when he was composing um he would just sort of let it go and free associate mm -hmm. and just kind of write you know i don't know if that i mean i think he has stuff that follows his own rule sets but it's just like in terms of what the pitch sets were or in terms of certain pieces or stuff, you know, that that all of this rules and theory like only go so far. And at a certain point, you're just kind of like letting a, a kind of intuition, you know, that you never lose that. And so I think it's important to trust that, like to to like my 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 note selection will always be sort of intuitive first and then aided by analytical schematics like later because yeah i mean it's kind of our brains are amazing things and i think what's happening when you do that is everything you've ever learned about music <laughs> in a way that is so complex that you could never you know write a computer you know algorithm to to approximate it. everything you've ever learned everything you've ever learned in your whole life that's not related to music is informing totally. what you do the next note you pick, you know what I mean? And so just like listening to that voice and like trying to be true, you're taking advantage of like a kind of software and like a, you know, a, a set of music making rules that is so complex that you can't understand it, even though it is your own brain doing it. And I mean, can you really beat that? <laughs> you know? yeah, um, Luke from Gorgas, for what it's worth, said something um, very, uh, very similar in that like really influential uh guitar.com video that i don't know about you but i i saw that earlier that people have a certain you know there was a lot this was like pre-youtube there was a lot less just musical content and certainly for this sort of niche um you know avant-garde whatever technical death metal and there was a guitar.com video they did around the time of frozen to hate and uh you know he was talking about how he did go to school for conventional to write like you know Mahler type stuff you know like that kind of stuff and orchestration and you know chord you know pre-tonal chord tonal chord theory not post-tonal chord theory um and then but then he himself said you know in terms of writing his own music he's like you know you learn all that stuff 
um, to inform your sensibility to, and because, you know, you have a hunger to understand the sort of like right way or the conventional ways, like, is like, and then, you know, you learn that stuff and then you forget it and just do what you're, and just write your stuff and just do what mm -hmm. you do. You have not, not, you know, and so I think that's, that's super important. Like if I would give any advice, it's to, you know, to be guided by that and not necessarily like consciously applying these strictures, you know what I mean? Um, totally, yeah. I was teaching a bass lesson once and the guy gave this question that I, I always remember where he's like, okay, if I'm playing in a metal context where there's a guitar riff, if I'm playing a, a riff or if I'm, I'm writing my bass line to a song and I want to play a note that's not the same note as the guitar playing, like how do I pick which note? <laughs> I was like, that is the question, <laughs> right? You know, and it's like that's kind of your whole musical life is 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 building the answer to that question. You know, mm -hmm. whether or not to play the unison, you know, with the with the part you're doing, and then if you're not, then like, how do you write something that sounds independent yet related? Um, and it's a it's a thing that's a little too subtle to have too many like um, hard and fast rules. Totally. Um... I mean, I guess I was reading probably the same Wikipedia article that you were, and it was saying something like, you know, it's very common to use the intervals, you know, like, you know, a semitone and a tritone. And I'm like, like, I don't know about that. Like to say that those are like the metal intervals um, and the way that people say that, like, you know, major is happy and minor is sad. And it's like right. fairly reductive. Um, well, I tritone guess, is like, in the Black Sabbath by Black, Flat, by Black Sabbath from the album Black Sabbath. You know, that's kind of like the... There is, I think you can make a case that that's like the, this deployment of the er, you know, interval or whatever. Um, and it's almost just so perfect historically because apparently this was also an interval that you could get, you know, fucking burned at the stake or something at certain times or putting in your church music, you know, that it was literally called the devil's interval and then became, but yes, your point's taken. I mean, um, mm -hmm. I like in my that early death metal, yeah. what? I like that six semitones. So it's like if it repeats, you know, tritone is like if you keep on doing a tritone, it will repeat. So it's six semitones repeat. Oh, like, six, like six, it's six, six, um, six. yeah, because it's like root tritone octave tritone. Like it, you're saying like it just keeps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's yeah, like a just a repeating six semitones. So it's like you know six yeah, six six yeah. essentially. Um, um, no, I mean I had a thing. I remember when I was first starting death metal in my first band, um, Astomatus, uh, in the early two thousands, talking with the guitarist. Um, there, he he was close enough and we were all close enough to the time when just the default uh like if you want if you if you really just had like a melody that was single notes but you wanted to kind of beef it up on guitar by by having every note be a chord built around that root note um he was close enough to you know the time when that would be a perfect fifth i.e a power chord that you'd move around you know mm -hmm. and so we did kind of have this conscious decision that like most if not every time that you were going to do that that it would just be a tritone instead, you know, just to make oh, the whole yeah. thing sound a little bit more sick. So that's when you said that, I was like, well, I don't know. I kind of actually did do exactly that early on. But uh, but you're right, of course. I mean, to call any interval, you know, I mean, all that Gorguts Obscura stuff is all built around, um, a lot of it's built around playing uh, major thirds, moving mm -hmm. major thirds around the neck, um, which it turns out, uh, if you do that on a, guitar that's tuned down to C, uh, you know, C standard <laughs> yeah. um, with a high gain setup, doesn't sound so happy anymore, especially when they're all parallel. So you're not even evoking major in this, you know, because you're not moving diatonically, you're just statically moving these intervals, you know, and it turned out like that was, that was kind of like the cool, 
you know, weird, heavy sounds. So. Yeah, and I, I appreciate how bands like Portal or like Primitive Man, I feel like they have just like moved the power chord. So it's like a, a minor six and it sounds fucking spooky, you know? Um, yeah. But I guess that, that makes me... So you got to move that note up or down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be a, a perfect fifth though. Um, but the sort of like spookiness, that uh, makes me just sort of curious about the whole like uh, aesthetic realm of this because like, um, I don't know, like on Red Amor Chord, like it seems like it's um like it's so far from campy gore as the aesthetic and so far from like anything that's you know problematic as people say um but there's like a lot of that on either end and so like um it seems like you know you're paying respects in a way to like uh you know victims of a famine and um that's like a, a whole different vibe than like you know like yeah man this album's about killing people and like you know sitting there and like appreciating like how right. gory this image looks so um like, is that a conscious decision of yours or is that how you think of it at all? Or? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's weird. This kind of ends up being a, a sort of like Ouroboros paradox, but I'll just lead you through it. Like, um, I really love Brutal Death Metal sonically, uh, bands like, you know, Disgorge and, um, you know, Devourment and stuff like that. Um, just there are more I'm not naming, but, you know, you can <laughs> go look it up. Yeah. Uh, I kind of, you know, have a problem that so often the the music is themed around violence against women. Yeah. Um, I think gore in general, I don't really have a problem with. You can you can make a case that that's this sort of like body horror. It's like exploding out this thing that we all have. Um, you know. Uh, asking sort of questions about like what are we what are we made of you know if you if you dissect me and put all my organs in a bathtub is that still me you know this kind of you know and so the more interesting artists both in like the horror movie genre or in the um uh in the sort of gore uh themed um death metal genres um get more into that area and totally cool fine in fact i'm into it um but there's a very fine line because the end results could ultimately look so similar you know uh, between that and just like, you know, almost a sort of like incel kind of thing. Like I'm <laughs> frustrated by the women in my life. Right. I would like to vicariously imagine, you know, blowing them to pieces or, you know, hacking them in various ways. And, and, and just like, yeah, yeah, no, like, 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 or I'm sorry, I should just say there's no way any record I ever made was going to have that, you know? Yep. Um, and I think in metal, the other thing um, I saw in your 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 idea map that you sent to me, the thing about kind of like just cause Satanism, you know, in black metal or something like that. Like, well, this is what these records are about and I'm in this genre. And so, you know, now I'm gonna like, <laughs> you know, just keep that theme going. Cause that's just kind of what you do to kind of, you know, make it, um, you know, but really of course, when you make a record, you're free to make it about whatever you want, you know? So mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to have it be I, I knew I didn't want to do anything like that. Um, I wanted to keep it very intense and dark because that suited just sort of what was going on, you know, mm -hmm. musically. Um, and so my idea was that it would be themed, um, it would be themed in a way that I hope would be not exploitative, mm -hmm. um, essentially to not exploitative not themed around some sort of like revenge fantasy, you know, cause you know, you hate your 
mom or whatever, you know, yeah. like not like themed about any kind of any kind of thing like that. But really, like, what if we took this and what if we took this, um, you know, this exploration into sort of dark, um, you know, the darkest sides of, of human experience uh, in a way that was more um, in a way that just uh, pointed at things that are like really wrong because what you know what is the darkest thing like some sort of made up violent scenario of somebody you know going mm -hmm. crazy or uh or like something that really happened that's like a real like injustice that you know you read about so i mean to, to be specific a lot of the record is themed around um journalists murdered in under authoritarian regimes um and uh i have intended i, re I really should have done it already but uh i um want to make an identic past website that like spells a lot of this stuff out more clearly mm -hmm. because you know uh the there aren't lyrics like the, the vocals are just sounds yeah, okay. um and so it's not like i could like have the lyric sheet or whatever like that but i but it's still like it's it's in the titles um which to me is sort of influenced by the industrial uh whatever you want to call it group muslim gauze you know which also didn't have you know vocals at all, but uh, but painted a picture with like the art and the the titles and things like that. That this you know very strong um, theming, but you know it's something I'd actually like to explain more. And again, you know, at some point there'll be identicpast.com, I think. You know, <laughs> um, because it was like yeah, like you know, I don't want to stray too far from the conceptual framework of what music like this you know typically deals with. But how can I do it in a way that is just sort of more like rewarding because it maybe brings attention to these, you know, situations that I think are really fucked up that that happened in real, you know, reality. Yeah. Um, and more people should know about it. More people should like know this person's name and know what happened to them and know that this still happens and, you know, or something like the Holodomor, you know, I mean, that's like, um, that's an insane, like world changing event that at the time was like, more or less swept under the rug and it's you know it's common historical knowledge now but it's still just like this is this is what humanity is like and not even that long ago you know like mm -hmm. um this is what like we have been doing to each other so for me it was like you know keeping the thing kind of i mean th this is what i meant by the ouroboros paradox is that in the end i still made a record that is themed on violent bloody murder and in fact that's what the red in the title refers to also a little bit to that so much of it is soviet stalinist based but um uh and i and i've struggled a lot with well is this still just especially because a lot of these are like real people victims like is this still you know just exploiting or still saying that but i kind of figured as long as it's not as long as it's done in a way that's like somber that's trying to like spread the information that in my mind is respectful and not like a sort of beavis and butthead like haha cool you know violence yeah. or whatever um that i could kind of you know square that circle but uh but yeah that's i mean yes was it a conscious decision like absolutely like because i just you know i really i really i think brutal death metal deserves kind of like a higher place in the sort of metal pantheon, you know, especially mm -hmm. because it's now so fully differentiated from what's called old school death metal, which um, not only in incorporates the old, what I really think of as old school, like the sort of like lumbering, knuckle dragging on Return of Gotha, but apparently also encompasses bands like Blood Incantation and kind of like, you know, Prime Era, Morbid Angel and stuff like that. Um, but there are lots of, you know, to me, brutal death metal has become a pretty different subgenre because 
the drums are handled differently. The guitar writing is handled differently. The vocals are totally different. Like the, um, you know, from the sort of enunciated David Vincent to the sort of frequently not having lyrics, just sort of rhythmic patterns um, thing, like what 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 Paulo does. Um, yeah, so I just, I think, you know, Brutal Death Metal kind of deserves like more of a seat at the table. And I feel like it's hamstrung by this um, just shitty choice of its theming and its presentation, like, you know, a lot of the time, or at least I don't want to do that. I don't yeah. want to have, you know, I, I would like to be involved with this genre and I would like to not be anywhere near misogynistic violence. So like, what is something, you know, <laughs> how can we, how can we attack that? You know? So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, basically, I, I think it was actually, I, I want to say it was Mick Barr that I read in an interview from where he said something about like, oh, you know, I think of black metal as just anything that's like satanic, however you interpret that. I think it, it might not have been him, but, um, you know, there's so many different branches of Satanism. Like, I feel like there's like, you know, the levee, like kind of prancing around in a cape and being like, at the end of the day, kind of like, you know, Ayn Rand, but then there's like the sketchy shit, um, like, you know, uh, like the order of nine, nine angels thing that I mentioned, I, I don't know anything about them either. I just know that they're like, uh, like you know evil um but uh then there's not like the you know, there what and not in the fun way yeah 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 um but then nearby like i feel like a very good way to just sort of replace some of that satanism is like like you know occult stuff that's not so overtly uh like uh problematic such as like you know chaos magic or whatever and um that makes me think so think of like a uh, band logos as kind of being like sigils and um, i'm curious you know you mentioned coil I know that they're big, like, chaos magic people. Um, do you fucks with the occult or esoteric stuff at all? or Not not in any specific practice. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I, I, I appreciate it, and I certainly think there's, like... I mean, what we view as reality, we, we know is uh, a sort of reality summary created by our brains where mm -hmm. it's like discarding the majority you know well over 50 percent of what our sense organs take in is being discarded and then sort of post post sensory processing in our brains is constructing then what we think of so the idea of just seeing something and being like that's what that is um is already you know a little shaky so it then stands to reason that in all of this stuff that we're discarding and things like that there are patterns and and forces and things like that that are you know um that are that we're choosing in a sense not to comprehend that are well beyond our comprehension and that there are you know things affecting other things connections that we don't think of as as possible you know that all that stuff but on the other hand um you know it's pretty clear that the sort of classic like sorcerer you know just like waving his hand and lifting a cup that that's not possible either it's not that right. simple you know and in a sense that's a sort of human reductive way of viewing yeah. something beyond our comprehension anyway you know <laughs> one of the later star wars movies they're like what is what is the force and the, <laughs> the girl's like it's this thing that allows you to move rocks <laughs> anyway i thought it was uh, oh, yeah. chi no um, yeah right not not so yeah no i don't you know i th i do think of it writing writing music and, and hearing back like is a way to tap into a form of um, beauty and a sort of organization that is, you know, a realm somewhat beyond the physical. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, 
something like magic to me, you know? I mean, it's something, it's... The effects cannot be specifically described or broken down and, and all of the interactions and stuff that we that we grasp so readily and intuitively as music listeners, but like can't really be described by just breaking everything down to like a scientific pitch analysis, you know? So mm -hmm. that margin, like I'm happy to call that, you know, <laughs> magic or occultism or something like that. Mm -hmm. But no, I've never messed with like any of the more formal kind of. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, with like you mentioned current 93 and coil and uh, I feel like I, I know that coil for sure got into some, into some spooky stuff like that. Um, Definitely. Yeah. No, and I mean, I think it's badass, like, as a thing that, you know, when I was a teenager to, like, theme of, you know, and it, and if if being involved with the more formal expressions of that helps you write your music, like, by all means, like, mm -hmm. like please bring it on, you know, but that's just not, that's just not me. Yeah. I mean, and similarly with, you know, your mention of, like, violence against women, like, I, I've definitely seen a documentary where the coil people are, like, you know, like, sacrificing a chicken and shit, and, like, I, I'm not really in support of people sacrificing animals in some sort of you know but um... that's news to me but they were not i mean it's funny because they're both dead uh i'm not sure they would withstand the scrutiny of personal active personal life activity that is now applied to artists if they were mm -hmm. alive um True. you know there's they lived in thailand for a while let's put it that way <laughs> so uh <laughs> Yeah, never heard that as a like a, a, a way of describing that type of thing. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I guess uh, we've been on here for a minute. I'll just ask a few quick questions and then we can wrap up. Um, I I feel like just perusing your Instagram briefly before the conversation, I got the sense that you probably have a good set of film recommendations, especially for this holiday season of spookiness. Do you have any <laughs> sort of? Uh, <laughs> Any movies that you recommend or films? Well, or... yeah, I mean, I did just see um, Possession, which you probably saw up, up top there. Uh, uh, I mean, um, I saw it, yeah, and I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, no, I, I posted about it. Like, um, yeah, uh, Possession by um, Zhilovsky, um is a movie I've. It's been on my list, and I and I thought it would be like extremely, you know, relevant to my interests in general for for like fifteen years, you know. And I, but it was actually kind of hard to see. Um, it was banned and cut to shit um, when it was made, and then there was one of these things where you you could get it, but you could only get the really cut redacted version. So I mm -hmm. kind of like, or or an or the full version that had like like subtitles from like Singapore or something like that. Not that that's fine, but it was also extremely low res, like the cut that was going around. So I'm like, okay, I just like waited and, you know, sure enough, like uh, enough time passed that uh, it's been, it's been fully restored the original cut. Um, it's a decent print, you know, and all that. Um, you can see it at the, the Metrograph website because it's showing at the Metrograph here. Uh, if you pay like five bucks, you know, just sign up for a month and then turn it off. Um, that movie's really great. And I mean, talking about the occult the and the personal, um, yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely highly recommend that. Um, I'm trying to think what other sort of like, uh, yeah, I mean, the other movie I, I watched recently was uh, um, Opera by Dario Argento, um, which is like a lesser known one. Um, Argento, I mean, talk about violence against women. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. Um, he's, 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 he's problematic to me and I don't think he's like super, super deep. Um, 
but he definitely has his moments and he developed like a film language that was kind of like all of his own um and opera might be kind of like the cross index of like you know the least stuff that i think is like kind of you know i'm not that comfortable with and and just the overall artistry like the index of those two things um going on but uh yeah shit i don't know i'm trying to uh <laughs> trying to think about um horror specifically uh or also um like books as well um and i saw that you mentioned something about um the cyborg manifesto which like i'm big into the world of like transhumanism and all that um and so i'm out if there's anything that's sort of like quasi sci-fi but like not sci-fi realm of just like well weird yeah I, shit. I got i got very into transhumanism myself um i, I would say um it's funny because it's been co-opted by like peter thiel types and stuff mm. like that so there's a kind of like fit um, but something I got completely fucking obsessed with in lockdown, uh, that I would, that I would hardly recommend to anyone who's, who's kind of into that sort of thing is, uh, the ghost in the shell TV series called mm. standalone complex. Like most people have seen the 1995 movie or perhaps the, you know, Scarlett Johansson live action one, which is uh, regrettable, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's from a manga, so there are many, many storylines and just like kind of one of those is treated in the 95 movie. The, the 95 movie is awesome, um, but it's sort of like, you know, and it has some, some really, really great ideas. I love the, um, there are two things I really, really love about the movie, uh, conceptually. It also just, you know, is awesome artistically and, and, and the sort of stuff that you notice first that I noticed when I was a kid, that the music is really cool and the images are great and just... But there are two things, you know, one is uh, there's this whole bit with uh, implanted memories where like one of the hackers is uh, the, like the villain hacker is using um, a, uh, a garbage man. Um, he just he just needs this person to be like a gopher to like do something that furthers the, the hacker's aims. But to do that, he's implanted this whole um, fake memory that the guy like has a family and stuff like that. And it's only like tangentially related to this whole fake scenario and the guy's head the garbage man's head that uh that he has to like do this thing which ultimately like helps the hacker you know just do like one little thing but then the guys the guys being debriefed by the police after this has sort of all come to light you know and the <laughs> the police are like yeah there's there's no way to reverse the implanted memories you know but you do like they show him picture like this is your apartment like you live alone you know <laughs> like you don't have family like and the guy's just like you're fucked for life you know but that and then more specifically the transhumanism you know the um the main character, lots of people in this vision have um, like a cyborg arm or something like that, or cyborg eyes to see better or something like that. The main character is notable because she is like just a brain and spinal cord or mm -hmm. in some versions and in other versions, just like a, a consciousness in a fully robotic body. And few people have sort of crossed that threshold to being so not human, you know, to this sort of like sort of ship of Theseus thing, you know, like if you take away human body parts, like how, you know, um, and it turns out the hacker that they're chasing in the 95 movie, in fact, is not a person at all. It's an AI like species that has just sort of, you know, evolved from the hyperconnectivity of this, mm -hmm. uh, of this world, which is just like the internet on steroids, basically. Um, and he's like, yeah, I, I've been doing all these things in the movie to, um, to kind of like you know catch your interest basically because you're the closest thing to me because you're sort of like started human but you know it's not clear that you are anymore and the thing that i love which is they changed in the scarlett johansson version which is why I, why i hate that movie more than you know the fact that they cast her and all that stuff uh 
is that when she finally discovers this, the main, the, the, the robot lady, she chooses to leave her physical body behind and like join this AI, like as like a pure, you know, like um, networked electronic consciousness with no corporeal form. Um, and I've always just, there's a similar concept of in the comic uh, transmetropolitanism, the, the cult of uh, foglitism. Hmm. Um, and like all these stories, I just find <laughs> just like super, super duper interesting. Um, so yeah, the 95 movie is, is cool, but, uh, this, this series from 2003, 2004, Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, um, there's two seasons and, uh, because there's, you know, it's actually just like a, a bunch of, uh, half hour episodes, um, they're able to just get really into the, um, there's just a lot more dialogue and a lot more of like story, you know, and so there's just like, there are so many, you know, there's a lot of stuff that touches on that. They have these like sort of mobile tanks that are like primitive AIs, but in the in the uh, um, uh, course of the show gain like full self-consciousness, you know, like they become like full realized beings, you know, and this is a, one of my favorite scenes is them like playing a trick on uh, one of the lower level robots that also works at the facility where they ask, uh, they give it like what they call a divide by zero paradox and the robot mm -hmm. just like glitches out, you know, cause they're like intelligent. So anyway, I've been talking <laughs> about this too much, but yeah, I'd say that's, if you're into like transhumanism kind of stuff, um, definitely, definitely check out the Ghost in the Shell standalone complex series. Uh, a while ago I interviewed somebody and like after the fact they realized that I was into it and they're like oh shit I didn't realize that this wasn't like a coffee podcast you should you should have asked me about transhumanism and I was like oh, <laughs> no you were into it um so I, I'm sort of curious like what um uh what realm of it you are into because I know there are at least like three branches and like me myself I'm really into like the David Pierce realm of like you know like uh hedonistic imperative and like you know biopsychiatry or whatever where it's like it's kind of like essentially like veganism gone like futurist um but i'm curious what you're into i mean I, I i have to say that i don't uh i haven't studied it in in the kind of depth where i could articulate different mm -hmm. branches or or even thinkers or something like that but i would just say more it's more any anything there's been so like little um in fiction fix fiction and movies and stuff like that remains so essentially um human orient you know kind of productively humanist where it's like um you know yeah we might go out into these sci-fi realms but usually by the end of the movie it's like remember who you are, remember where you came from you know yeah. this and that um remember your essential humanity and for me i mean that's good and you know from a moral perspective that is probably important to keep in line but uh to keep in mind but um it's more the sense that our con our consciousness just so clearly is more than our bodies and we can imagine as a thought experiment you know um a sufficiently advanced computer such that we could upload our consciousness into it and be somehow like the same person you know um or could we i mean we couldn't you know mm -hmm. but i would just say that this this line of inquiry in general is is tremendously fascinating to me the the degree to which we are and are not um our physical bodies you know if i lose an arm i'm like roughly the same person right uh but um and you and so you know but then it's like well how many things you know can i lose and then conversely um uh i you know i, I do a lot of yoga and stuff like that partially to 
deal with injuries and repetitive stress coming from you know playing music uh like this for so long uh mm -hmm. and there's a whole you know one of my other favorite facts that sort of contradicts what i just said is that you know so um neuroscientists talk about the cns and the pns the the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system mm. um you have neurons in your the central nervous system is brain and spinal cord um and you have neurons and we're, we're people are pretty comfortable with the sort of like idea of the neuron and its metaphorical significance as sort of like the home of thought um this it's the same when neurons are just outside of the brain and spinal cord i.e throughout the arms limbs you know the gut or whatever um it's known as the peripheral system uh, nervous system and they're known as nerves but they're this exactly the same cell which is to say you have you know brain stuff kind of all throughout you and when you do yoga or or physical therapy or, or these kinds of things um there is a process of what they call innervation, which is to say, you know, using using limbs and parts of your body um, in ways that are like more conscious and building up not only like the muscular strength, but the sort of mind body connection, the, the mm -hmm. innervation, the ability to consciously inhabit these parts um, as a way to stave off injury, um, you know, more more than you have been. I know for for me a lot when I was a kid and before I started doing this, I really did kind of not think about my body at all. I just felt like a sort of head, mm -hmm. you know, a, a consciousness with no actual mass, just sort of like floating around that somehow was lo maybe located like kind of here, you know? Um, and so it's tremendously fascinating to follow this, you know, innervation, like, you know, to what extent is my consciousness actually present in my hand or my foot or my gut, which, you know, by the way, your gut has like more nerves, AKA neurons than anywhere but your, you know, your brain. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it just the, the, the contradiction right there of that we both could imagine ourselves and ourselves still existing, you know, uploaded to some server with nobody. And then the fact that our body does seem to think and to inform our thinking and that, mm -hmm. that, you know, that right there is a contradiction that somehow is, is kind of true, you know, to, to me that. That would be my homespun definition of transhumanism and sort of the mode, you know, is that it's dealing. It's not that I want it to go in a certain direction. And I feel like there are people who do kind of want to get to this ghost in the shell type reality of mm -hmm. like, you know, full enhancements and replacements and stuff like that. And uh, it's not that I'm, I'm so interested in that, but it's more just, I mean, to me, I guess you could say the question of transhumanism is the question of what is consciousness in the, in the first place, which mm -hmm. is kind of the only question. <laughs> Um, it's funny. I, I know I just said I only had a few questions, but now I, when you open up this uh, yoga door, I just want to know a little bit more because somebody who has like um, like I used to be somebody that played Les Paul. That shit's heavy, and like the shoulder's not in the right place. Um, and I'm sure that your base is heavy as well, and you're know, like a lot of stuff to do here. Um, do you have any uh, like advice for just maintaining a healthy sort of uh, relationship with your instrument such that it doesn't stop you from playing it as much as you need to i've um, always wanted to have a les paul by the way <laughs> uh being lefty mine. you don't have many what yeah i said you should buy mine but uh, right well i'm I, lefty. I, I'm emotionally intent oh interesting i forgot about that yeah. that, that uh that's constrained my guitar and bass choice for a long time yeah but i do i play this schecter i play the same bass i have two that i keep in different tunings um for since uh, 2006 and um yeah it's this uh, schecter stiletto studio six and it's a six string and it's mahogany and it is very heavy um so yeah it's it's 
kind of fucked me up uh honestly mm-hmm. um i think but the, but the thing is that i also didn't start um i didn't start working with physical therapy yoga you know kind of practices for for like a really long time until like basically until i had just like pain that was not ignorable you know and yeah. it was actually like affecting my ability to play in fact one of my favorite things to do like i said you know consciousness with no physical thing one of my favorite things to do from when i was young is just check out sort of mentally playing and just play for for hours and hours and hours you know um and i was completely unaware that doing the same physical patterns over and over again or sitting in the same way Mm -hmm. for that long could be you know bad um and so i would say this this is this is at least this is this is what i think you know helps and what i think if if I had been doing since, since I started, I started playing bass, um, when I was like 15 or 16. Mm -hmm. Um, if I, if I had been doing that, doing this sort of stuff anywhere near the beginning, I feel like I wouldn't be as fucked up as I am. And I feel like I know people who have a little bit more, you know, have, who have taken this more balanced, uh, impression and, 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 and they're, they're doing better than I am. Um, but, but basically, uh, vis-a-vis yoga, um, the thing that is great about these yoga sequences that have you know i mean this is a whole other discussion of like the authenticity and the degree to which it resembles you know this ancient indian practice and i mean who knows you know cultural appropriation this whole kind of thing but whatever we come to this thing where this stuff is readily available to us and I basically think of it as almost kind of like an owner's manual for the human body, like a way to check in with all the different parts. Because as you move through a yoga sequence, if you have something like a music related repetitive stress injury, certain parts on certain sides will, will tell you about it. They'll be like, Oh my God, like I can't, you know, like that part really has a lot, it has a lot of sensation or even pain, you know? Um, and the thing that's great about these yoga sequences as they exist um, in their current form is I basically, it seems to me that they are, they have been designed such that they are kind of like perfectly symmetrical. Mm-hmm. They engage um, both like stretch, but also, you know, activate, which is to, to say, you know, using strength, you know, cause, cause you can't just stretch. You have to like use it, use the muscle, you know, have some, some strength stress to it that that seems to like get blood going to it. And then it, it has the capability to stretch and then you can kind of stretch it, um, you know, make it looser, make it more supple and less um, and able to do more, you know, before you reach the sort of injury point. Um, and yeah, so uh, yoga, the, you know, these, these common sequences are this way that they'll sort of by do it by doing it, you'll check in with basically every body part um, in like a very balanced way. And what I see that as is that's kind of like a, a reset, you know, that's that's what's going to be, that's what's gonna leave your muscular skeletal system in like the most sort of like health, you know, like to operate. Um, the thing about music, you know, it's sad, but especially, um, especially good. Well, I mean, I was gonna say, so the problem with, one of the biggest problem with guitar or bass is that it's asymmetrical. It's an ace, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, I've actually thought of maybe just like in my in my desperation of starting to play right-handed so i'm like oh well if we did 20 years left-handed and 20 years right-handed like you know kind of at least the stresses would be different you know um but you know i don't i don't want to lose all the 
kind of experience, you know, obviously. Um, but that, yeah, so the problem with, with, with these types of instruments is that, is that the stress is so asymmetrical. So, you know, this, uh, I'm, I'm obviously, this is fretting hand, you know, but it's like this mm -hmm. thing of like, kind of clench, eternal clenching kind of, mm -hmm. you know, up one kind of another with this and like this, and then like not with that. So then that leaves this sort of like pattern on the body that just uh, has that. But I think even symmetrical instruments like drums or piano, just because you're doing certain things, um, you know, there are muscles that are being used and muscles that aren't being used because they're required to play. And that itself is a kind of asymmetry, even if it's like, I don't know, you know, the asymmetry of the top of the forearm to the bottom or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so the reason that yoga, um, and again, this could be yoga, or it could be yoga broken down to sort of like a battery of uh, physical therapy related exercises, you know, mobility drills, whatever you want to call it. Um, but for me, I've, I found it through, through yoga is that, um, it seems like if you're doing this stuff intensely, where you're basically, you know, like everything you do with your body basically leaves a kind of mark, leaves like an imprint. And so if it's guitar or bass, you're kind of imprinting on yourself like that. And then at least, you know, once you stop or some point that day doing a yoga sequence is going to help you get back to zero. You know, it's going to put a kind of wash your body in a movement pattern that is symmetrical, that has everything activated in like a healthy, uh, sort of sustaining way, every part balanced, you know, nothing, no crazy stresses on one ligament and then not on the other and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So that's where my thinking is at. But, it, but I mean, it's a, it's, it's a constant battle for me. Like I think about this shit, like I'll, I'm, I just turned 38. So, um, you know, getting to the point where <laughs> mistakes of the past or whatever are becoming like incredibly apparent in this kind of way. So, uh, yeah. Totally. I mean, yeah, the, the last Paul, like, I feel like stopped me from seriously playing for a while. And I'm also like a big, like, I don't know if you're, you're into Ben Mondra, but I'm like a big, like stretchy Mondra chord guy. And, um, like, I'm pretty sure just some of these fingers are like not in the right socket anymore. Like they're just like twisted oh. as well. You know? Um, so, I mean, I've had to definitely switch things up and like do some therapies. Um, and so I'm like trying to like find every modality that works, but, um, what, what branch of, or like what sequence do you do of yoga? Um, vinyasa sequences mostly. Um, but I found that, you know, basically every, that, that, that's just what I do. And, 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 um, because I need, you know, again, I, I found that the stuff works. Vinyasa can be pushed a little too far into the like CrossFit direction. You know, that'll mm -hmm. always be the branch that, that, that or Hatha, which is pretty similar will be the, the branches that, that, you know, a, a gym like that, uh, will do because it's, you know, it, it, you can push it into the sort of physically demanding realm. And obviously if it gets too strength oriented like that, then it starts to add its own stresses, you know, to your body. Yeah. But at the same time, it seems like you need a little bit of that kind of strength component to, um, get enough activation that then the therapeutic aspect will sort of like take hold. But honestly, yeah, like every single, branch that I've done with it. You know, there's yin yoga, which is kind of like the mellowest. Um, uh, there's, um, I forget, I'm honestly forgetting the names, but the, you know, the other, other branches that are, there's uh, like Ashtanga where you do certain, you have, there's like maybe a, a smaller um, breadth of sequences, but you do them again and again and again. But again, they're, they're, it's a balanced sequence, like a sun salutation or something like that. Um, uh, and then, yeah, I forget the name of the other of one that's like focused on it might it might be Hatha that's like Vinyasa, but it's just focused on holding stuff for like a lot longer than whereas Vinyasa mm -hmm. is more about moving from thing to thing. And honestly, I've just 
every, every single kind has value in my opinion, you know, so I, I try to just to, to mix it up, but I don't, uh, I don't end up, I, you know, usually end up there's once I start a vinyasa sequence, there's so much that I'm like, Oh my God, I never realized how fucked up this thing in my back is that mm -hmm. that's, you know, let, let's sit with that for a while, you know? So, um, it's all about kind of like accessing that stuff. So, but yeah, I wouldn't say I really have like a recommendation one way or the other, but um, I was talking to Jeremiah Zimmerman and he mentioned uh, Mario Diaz de Leon sort of hipping him to like breath work. Do you do any of that or do you do meditation or? Um, well, yeah. Um, first of all, what's up, Mario? Awesome dude. Awesome closer. Uh, and, and Jeremiah. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if I wanted to give a reductive definition of yoga, it would be, uh, you know, the combination of breath work with something like what we'd now call physical therapy you know there's also the spiritual component and i'm sure some people would be very angry at me like counting <laughs> that so mm -hmm. i'm sorry but um but the thing you can't you can't remove from yoga is is the breathwork component um that's that's the, the the whole you know when you start doing it you'll find at least i found that it's like oh yeah well i can assume these positions as you know as directed and do all this stuff but then once you once you can do that with any sort of competence, you then have to take it and then apply the deep breathing pattern that they're supposed to do as you move through these things. And first of all, that makes it more valuable. That's a huge part of the therapy, I think, because in a lot of these positions, it's like once you've put yourself in this certain pose, then especially if you have back problems like me, um, deep breathing will, is physically expanding. Mm -hmm. your your chest and back area in a way that is like the almost the only way to get at some of these muscle groups and apply some movement you know um but uh yeah so i i don't do i i wish you know it's sort of on the to-do list you know it, mm -hmm. the larger one uh um i should be meditating and doing breath work that isn't tied to yoga but uh but I do take the breathwork aspect of yoga very seriously. And I think it does, you know, I fully, like I said, you know, in terms of like sort of woo woo mystical stuff, whatever, you know, um, I fully think that uh, there are benefits to breathwork um, that have not, that, that will be able to be scientifically described eventually, but have not mm -hmm. been currently described by science. And as such are, you know, in the, <laughs> in the realm of like, you know, I was gonna say of like crystal healing or you know what I mean it's mm. it's unfortunate it's like we have science with this like very narrow circumscribed thing and then I mean science is only barely just catching up to the benefits of yoga which seem like blindingly obvious to the point where like NFL players are doing it and stuff like that because yeah they have crazy repetitive muscle injuries yeah. Duh, of course when they do these things they're like oh my god I never realized you know um but, the, but, you know, science definitely like lags behind. And so it places these, there are these things that to me, from my own experience, have just seemed very obvious and not even particularly mystical, you know, in terms of the benefits of breath work, you know, they're still very sort of biologically based. But the fact that they're, once you step out of the narrow range of what's been proved by science, you're with all the other shit that's like, obviously completely horseshit like this quartz is healing or whatever, you know, so mm -hmm. you gotta kind of find your way. But totally. yes to breathwork, short answer. Cool. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, I guess that's all I have. Uh, so cool. Adenic Pass website will eventually be up, or Adenic Pass. Yeah, I'd say um, AdenicPass.com as you know, as soon as I do it. Um, and otherwise, Bandcamp Friday is sometime, and you have lots of shit from Gary on and 
uh, uh, Kralis and... Yeah, I mean, for now, identicpass.bandcamp.com, it's also just honoring. Sentient Ruin is making a long sleeve, um, which I think is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, uh, check out also um, P2, the website, the, the record label that put out... Um, uh, what is there? Is it P two Logia? Uh, whatever we can we can, we can find it. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, um, P two Records is uh, does Edenic Past and has kind of become the home for me and like Collins all you know uh, done the last Carlos and stuff like that. Uh, Gilead Media also for Carlos stuff. Um, yeah, those are <laughs> cool. And well, um, thanks for talking to me. And um, right. yeah, uh, ping for life, I guess. Exactly. Well, no, ping sometimes. Ping is ping is ping is a treat. <laughs> a little ping is a treat. Uh, <laughs> all right, man. All right. Thank you for uh, thank you for the discussion. Yeah, I'll let you know when it's up and stuff. Please. Uh, Recording. Cool, man. Peace. Right. Later.